thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. This week on The Naked Scientist, we've got science on trial, finding out how it can help and hinder criminal investigations from how insects can crack a case. And he had disposed of the body, but he'd forgotten to dispose the insects that were feeding on the body. To how TV can twist the facts. CSI is one of our worst enemies because it gives police officers and other clients very elevated expectations of what they're going to get back from us. And why we still get it wrong. Something in the order of a quarter to a third of all identifications made by an eyewitness are actually identifying somebody who's innocent. I'm Georgia Mills and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. It has been estimated that up to 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted of serious crimes each year in America alone. That's about 0.5% of total convictions, which might not seem like a huge amount, but that's an awful lot of people who are getting away with it. So this week, I've got science on trial, finding out the ways it can help crack who done it, but also asking why it's so often not clear. Let's start with a crime scene. When there's been a crime, the first officers on the scene take steps to avoid contamination. There's that famous yellow tape, do not cross. And then they collect things that can be used as evidence, interview any witnesses. It's stuff we've seen a hundred times on television. But if there's been a murder, it's not often the police that are first on the scene. There's something else which can arrive in as quickly as 15 seconds. Insects, which collect around bodies, can provide vital clues, which is why entomologists, a.k.a. insect experts like Dr Martin Hall, are often called in to help with investigations. I visited Martin at the Natural History Museum in London, and he told me about how his field is one of the oldest forensic sciences. Forensic entomology has got quite a long history. There are even reports from 13th century China about insects being used to help solve crimes. But really, things started to get underway in uh, UK in uh, 1935 when um, there was the famous case of Buck Ruxton who murdered his wife and his wife's maid dismembered their bodies and threw them into a ravine and um, when the body parts were found uh, many of them contained maggots and we've actually got in our museum collection some of the maggots here they don't look very impressive small brown things they obviously weren't preserved very well these are the maggots from the actual case yes that's right yes these are the actual ones so from 1935 and they were identified as a blue bottle fly. Uh, it has the lovely name Cliffer of Asina. Um, it's actually the most common blue bottle on bodies in the UK. So back in 1935, uh, the scientists um, aged these maggots. 
And um, that ageing fitted in with um, a witness who was knocked off his bicycle. He managed to write down the number plate of this car, and it happened to be Buck Ruxton's car. And it was him basically making a quick getaway from the scene where he dumped the body parts. And it helped steer the investigation in the right timeline. But it was the first time that maggot evidence was used in the investigation. And he was actually found guilty, Buck Ruxton, and hanged for those murders the next year in 1936 in Strangeways Prison, Manchester. It's incredible to look at these tiny, shriveled things in this in this jar. It's amazing to think that they actually had an impact in a forensic investigation. Absolutely, yes. Blowfly adults, they respond to um, the odours of decomposition uh, amazingly finely. And um, they have antennae on the head, which act like the nose, basically. And I've got a sheet of sticky paper over here. You can see when I pull back the top here. Oh, it's, it's full of flies. Covered in flies. These, these are um, uh, mostly green bottle flies, actually. These were caught in Hungary. And this sticky sheet was actually just pa- placed over a, a rat in an experiment. And all of these flies have come in to land on this dead rat. I mean, there, there are, are hundreds. hundreds. Yes, exactly. So um, they can detect the odours of decomposition really early. Um, and they'll arrive um, very soon after death in our uh, experimental works here in the museum. We use um, pig heads because they're cheap and easy to come by. And um, sometimes when we unwrap them up in the tower, which is eight floors up, we'll have blowflies arriving within uh, 15 to 30 seconds. Not only was I treated to a sticky tape full of flies, but Martin also had prepared a glass box of very much alive maggots. Some of them had already started developing hard cases as pupae, but most of them were squirming along very unpleasantly. So these maggots we've got in front of us are uh, squirming around, yes, but doing it rather uh, lazily, to be quite honest, because it's a bit cold in this uh, cocoon in the museum here. And uh, what I've done is I've just taken out a few here on the side, and you can see uh, these are all pupae, so they look like a bit like a rugby ball, uh, and they change in colour from a white one through sort of yellowy-orange to this uh, dark brown. And that colour transformation takes place over about eight hours or so. The size of the maggots found, along with the distinct colour changes of any pupae, can give scientists a very good idea of how long a body has been dead for. What we do basically at a a crime scene is collect the insects. Uh, They may be eggs, they may be larvae, may be actually pupae. Because, I say, they wander away from the body, it's essential that at a crime scene we don't just collect the larvae on the body, but collect those that have moved away. So we have to dig in the soil around the body and so forth, uh, look under... Uh, furniture if the body's indoors Um, and we then age these larvae um, or pupae um, in relation to the temperatures at the crime scene and we actually employ that in a um, public event we have here called crime scene live members of the public come along on a friday evening and join us in investigating a a mock crime and um, we're actually able to use some of our latest cutting edge techniques here ct scanning CT scanners are bits of apparatus that you commonly see in a hospital for looking inside um, your body. And we can do exactly the same thing, but actually with much better resolution. But we present these um, uh, pictures to the public and we give them examples of uh, pupae that were collected at the crime scene and they have to try and work out how old the pupae are. And uh, we think we can get to um, a resolution of about 10% of the age of these insects. Telling you about how long a body's been there, that sounds like it can be quite important in the police establishing their timeline. Yeah, exactly, yes. I mean, uh, in 
I've worked on about um, 170 cases with UK Police Force now, and uh, I worked out about three quarters of them. The major police question is, um, you know, how long has this body been dead for? But there are other things that um, could be informative from insects. I mean, insects are ubiquitous in our environment, so they're commonly encountered at a crime scene. Like all animals, um, you know, you are what you eat. And uh, these insects are obviously feeding on um, dead body, and they can actually ingest the substances in and on that body. So, for example, they can ingest um, drugs that um, the person may have died of an overdose, for example. The larvae can actually be collected and ground up and you can find the drugs in them. Now, that might sound a bit ridiculous to say but if you've got a body there, but sometimes there might not be a body there. And we've worked on cases where a load of fly puparia were found, but the police were suspicious and uh, the pupae were ground up and inside them they detected um, drugs and they then um, looked for human DNA and they got a 75% match with a, a known missing drug user. And with that evidence, they were able to secure a conviction for the uh, murderer. And he had disposed of the body, but he'd forgotten to dispose the insects that were feeding on the body. Well, some nasty stuff goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, incredible, actually. I mean, I um, never expected to uh, anything like this with my entomological training. And it certainly opens my eyes to a you know, part of a human uh, activity in nature that uh, I, I just didn't imagine. Martin Hall. And insects aren't the only living things that can provide important clues in cases. For example, diatoms. These are a tiny kind of algae. These can prove whether someone was killed before or after being dumped in water, depending on whether or not they're in the bloodstream. And it's even been suggested that the bacteria that live in and on you could leave a unique microbial fingerprint at the scene of the crime. And while understanding of biology has been at the forefront of a strong forensic investigation for years, technology is starting to have a much larger impact in the courtroom. So still to come on The Naked Scientist, I'll be listening in to some audio forensics and examining why better tech doesn't always mean better judgments. Now, once the police have enough evidence to incriminate a suspect, that's not the end of the story. A jury has to listen to the evidence and decide whether or not they are guilty beyond reasonable doubt. While looking into this programme, I realised I didn't really have the first clue of how this process went, other than a very scrambled idea from the odd TV show. So how does it work? Well, first, the prosecution present their case. They start with what's called factual evidence. These are statements from witnesses. And then comes the expert evidence, which is when forensics comes in. An expert from a field is required to interpret a piece of evidence. Then it's the defence's turn, and they may bring in an expert to provide an alternative interpretation. Jason Coyne is from the company IT Group and this is what they do. They specialise in the digital areas of forensic science. Typically when expert evidence uh, is presented by the Crown, the defence team will generally call experts such as ourselves to look at any any digital forensics and ask us to uh, interpret that evidence for them. Often it's, it's a case of validating the evidence that's being provided, but also quite often we find um, mistakes have been made. Something that's become a lot more important recently in trials is using mobile phones to place people at the scene of the crime. This is called cell sighting and it uses the call data record from a phone company. But apparently the picture is not always as clear as the prosecution would make it seem. So let's start. I'm getting a call from my friend. How does their voice reach me and how does that notify the phone company to my location? 
When your mobile phone is switched on and on the cellular network, it will negotiate which particular cell site or cell tower uh, is best able to communicate your voice across the network to your friend. Um, so once it's connected to a particular cell site, the mobile network will actually register which cell site your mobile phone was on when a particular call event takes place. And they use that so that they can A, route the call through to you successfully, but also for the purposes of billing. And it's that cell site record that can be used to try and identify where you was geographically positioned at any point in time in history. So these towers, they're just dotted across the country? They are. In, in the countryside, um, they look like similar to big pylons with radio aerials on top. But then in the more urban areas, they're often positioned on businesses and you'll see it, a metal structure, and then a series of aerials positioned around it. Typically, they have three aerials. How is this kind of information used by law enforcement? What you will often find when you look through some of the papers that the police will provide uh, as part of a court case is you will see the instruction that they provided to the cell site um, analyst. What will often be the case is that the police are trying to put a suspect in a particular location. One that I'm, I'm looking at at the moment is where the suggestion is that a particular suspect was inside a shop at a particular point in the evening. And the instructions were to the uh, cell site analyst was to test whether the suspect was in the shop based on his call data record. So what happens in that scenario is the cell site analyst will go to that particular location in the shop, he will switch on his cell site measuring device and he will see if he was connected to that particular cell site. If his device tells him that he would be connected to that cell site, then what often glows in the police report is that the suspect was inside the building at that point in time. So is it as simple as that? Put you at the scene of the crime, case, case old? It's, it's, it, it, it's not, it's not. Because the area that that cell site covers may well be two, three, four, often 10 kilometres squared. So what you then need to do is after identifying that the suspect could well be in the shop, you've then really got to widen the circle and do what I call a range survey to identify what other possible areas the suspect could have been. And this is something you've looked into for this case? This is absolutely something that, that, that I've looked into for this case. And, um, and, and what we found is that the suspect provided uh, an alibi that he was actually at his girlfriend's house at the time that the robbery took place. Uh, and his girlfriend's house was, uh, was, was about a kilometre away. But what I was able to do, I was able to sell site the retail shop and then go all the way from that shop to the girlfriend's house and actually at the girlfriend's house it was exactly the same cell site coverage so had he made a call from his girlfriend's house the call data record would have been identical. I see so at first glance this looked incriminating but then if you take a step back it actually just supports his alibi. Absolutely yeah you've got to test both the positive case where you're trying to put the suspect but really you've also got to consider what the possible range might be of that and look at the, and look at the al alibi cases as well if you're going to test it properly. 
Do you think we'll see a trend in the future that this might get any more accurate? Absolutely. I mean, with the early generation 2G mobile phones, the cell towers would typically cover 15 kilometres, and it was very difficult to position anyone. With 3G, the cell sites come down to covering typically only about two kilometres. The 4G cell sites now that are built really for carrying a lot of data were finding have less range still. And you'll find that in some high streets, there's quite a high saturation of 4G cell sites every few hundred metres. So it could well be the case that if you have somebody that's conducting a telephone call and that telephone call is handled by three or four different cell sites, then you can probably position that suspect with some degree of precision as they walk down that street. This kind of technology is leaving a big stamp on the justice system. The Hatton Garden raid has been noted as the biggest robbery in British history after a group of men nicked about £14 million worth of jewellery. The gang even studied forensics in a bid to avoid leaving a trail, but they forgot about this new technology. They'd all had their phones on them. And cell sighting isn't the only way your phone might tell tales on you. A lot of work that we do now is actually on looking at the methods of communication between suspects because we find that often now when crime is committed people will take photographs and those photographs have a geolocation so they're able to locate uh, where the individual was when the photograph was taken and then as these are exchanged through social media and things like that there's quite a trail that can be examined. Wow, that sounds incredibly stupid to me, <laughs> to take a photo, like a selfie in front, yes, of, a, <laughs> absolutely. In front of a robbery. <laughs> we, we, we certainly see that. We, we, we often see that when it's crimes where people have stolen currency. So people, it would seem, like to have their photograph taken with large wads of cash uh, <laughs> in, in their hands. <laughs> Jason Coyne from IT Group there. And unfortunately for police, not every criminal is likely to broadcast their crimes quite so brazenly. But this doesn't mean you can't be monitored. If police suspect someone of a crime, they can bug their house, their car or their phone. Who's seen the wire? And then this audio can make or break a case. The making of audio recordings is a very significant source of evidence in both criminal investigations and in prosecutions in the sense that if the police have reason to believe that someone is involved in criminal activity, they may record that person. That's Peter French, chairman of speech and acoustics laboratory JP French Associates. They do what's called audio forensics, which isn't something I'd come across before, so he took me through some of the things their company does. So one of the things we're asked to do is to compare the voices in criminal recordings with the voices of known suspects. Now, when I say criminal recordings, there could be a whole range of things. For instance, if the police think that you're involved in high-level crime, what they often refer to as top-draw crime, they will, in fact, bug your premises under a warrant. And we'd be comparing those voices with the voices of known suspects, from usually from police interview recordings. What happens if the quality of the recording isn't too good? This is, in fact, a very frequent scenario. A lot of the recordings that we get into the lab for processing have a lot of background noise in them or other problems of intelligibility associated with them. What we can do in those cases is to apply digital sound processing programs to the recordings in order to reduce the noise. 
Typical scenarios would be things like undercover police officers posing as drugs buyers, striking up deals with a drug dealer. This might take place in somewhere like a pub. So what we'd have in the background is a loud jukebox. We might have glasses clinking. And what we'd be trying to do is to reduce the level of that noise relative to the foreground conversation so that it can be more clearly heard. And there's a variety of digital processing techniques we use in order to enhance the sound quality. How does it actually work when you when you need to get something out? I'm thinking of CSI when they just kind of click enhance and the image becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. What what do you actually do? How does it work? Well, not the way that CSI portray it. In fact, CSI is one of our worst enemies because it gives police officers and other clients very elevated expectations of what they're going to get back from us. Um, the techniques we use, whole range of them really, If it's broad spectrum noise, noise that goes right across the frequency spectrum, what we'll do is to use a technique known as spectral subtraction. This involves uh, taking the recording and locating parts of the recording where there's no speech from the people in question, pauses between words, between sentences. And what we do is we sample that noise using the computer. And then once it's assembled a profile of the noise, It will remove noise with that profile from the sound file as a whole, and that will usually improve intelligibility. We had a clip of Peter working his magic on a real wiretap recording. However, we ironically couldn't get the legal clearance to play it. However, the techniques actually sounded quite familiar to what we do at The Naked Scientist when we've got a bit of poor quality recording. So I can give you a slightly less swish example. Here's a bit of audio from Sea Life in London with a lot of background noise. And here it is, post-noise reduction. The editing software simply strips out anything that matches the background hum, just leaving the speech. But just as you can edit the background noise out of a clip, equally, if you were so inclined, you could chop up someone's speech, just like a jigsaw, and change the order or even the meaning of what they say. It's not something we'd ever do, but how do you know what you're getting is genuine? We have available a new technique, which is known as ENF analysis, that's electrical network frequency analysis. We're talking here about the fact that we've got an alternating electric current in use, and the nominal rate of alternation for the current is 50 times a second, in other words, 50 hertz. But in reality, it's never absolutely spot on 50 hertz. It alternates unpredictably 49 point something, 51 point something, 50 point something, backwards and forwards. And this happens on a moment-to-moment basis in response to different levels of demand on the electrical network. The point is, though, that because we get these moment-by-moment fluctuations in the level of alternation, that means that any slice of time on a recording where this mains hum is represented actually tells us when that recording was made. So let's say someone submits a recording to us and says, this is a whole recording, it's continuous, which took place on the 4th of April. Because we record the mains hum 24-7, we'll run it against a database and we'll say, well, actually, 
the first 10 seconds of that recording were made on the 27th of March 2014. There's then 30 seconds of speech, which comes from, let's say, the 31st of October 2014, beginning at two o'clock in the afternoon, and so on and so forth. So by looking at the, the mains hum on a recording, we can usually tell A, when it was made, and B, if it's a, a mosaic of pieces of recording from different times and dates, what I should say is that in order to do this, the recording device doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the to the mains. Even if it's a battery-operated um, device or even a mobile phone, as long as you're recording in, say, a, an urban environment or you're reasonably ne near to a main source, you will often get inducted mains hum down in the noise floor of the recording. And what we can do is to amplify it and analyse it from there, run it against the database. And are the recordings, are the, is the hum different enough from day to day? It's different enough from second to second. I mean, it's changing in frequency all the time and it's doing so totally unpredictably. It's, it's not just that you, we can pin it down to a day, we can pin it down to the second that it was started and the second it was finished. That the, it, it, it's almost like a fingerprint, a time fingerprint, which is peculiar to any section of time that we have on the recording and it will be unique to that slice of time. The telltale hum. That was Professor Peter French from JP French Associates. It's interesting, but it's interesting in the same way taking personality tests are interesting. They kind of tell you something you already know about yourself, but it's kind of reaffirming. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, as the costs of DNA analysis come down, we've seen the rise of home genetic testing. But what do these tests actually reveal? Plus, digging up dog genomes and our gene of the month is totally legless. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. Court is in session this week on The Naked Scientists, as you're with me, Georgia Mills, and I've got forensic science in the dock. I'm asking, can it prove who done it? If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, do drop us a line. Email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. So far, I've seen the flies that are first at the scene of the crime. I've learned how mobile phones can tell tales on crooks and heard how audio recordings can play a key part in the courtroom. All very impressive, but there's a particular type of evidence I haven't mentioned yet, which is arguably one that's had the biggest impact in the last few decades, and that's DNA. This is so often used to clear or condemn suspects in the courtroom. But what makes this type of evidence so important? Everyone is made up of it. It contains basically the genetic information that makes up who you are, so what you look like, yeah, your hair colour, your eye colour, everything. That's Dr. Marie Ochimoto, lecturer in forensic sciences at Anglia Ruskin University. DNA not only provides the code for what colour your eyes are, your gender, but it's like a unique barcode which forensic scientists can use to put you at a crime scene, provided it matches the samples found there. DNA is found all over your body, in your cells. These are in your skin, your saliva, your blood. But how do we get this match? Well, if a sample is found at the scene of the crime, it's taken to a lab like Marie's. The DNA that you get at a crime scene is probably not going to be the cleanest sample. It might be off the floor, it might be off the toilet floor. So one of the first steps, what we have to do is extract it and purify it. Also to get rid of any contaminants that might be present, as well as um, cellular material. 
The second step would be to find out how much there is, so it's called quantification. The amount of sample that you normally have at a crime scene is usually very limited in both quality and quantity, so it's necessary uh, to amplify that, so basically get more of that, many, many copies. Marie amplifies the DNA with what is called PCR. DNA is double-stranded, so imagine a train track. And when you heat the DNA, the train track splits apart. And then using some proteins called primers, this can rebuild each side of the split track, meaning now you have two train tracks. This is repeated over and over until you have billions of pieces of this original strand of DNA. Once we've done that, we can actually separate it and find out what fragments we actually have. So we use what's called a capillary electrophoresis machine, um, and that can generate you know, a DNA profile. And hopefully that's a full DNA profile. The machine in the lab looked a bit like a computer from the 90s, big, grey, blockish, and the front opened up to reveal several tiny glass tubes, which all led into a small black box with a sign saying, Danger! Avoid direct exposure to beam. So the next stage is to take your DNA strands, which have been dyed a colour, and feed them into the machine. Okay, so we're turning on the... What's it called again? It's called a... What? This, this model is a 3130. It's a genetic analyzer. Um, it's also... Well, it's used to separate fragments for DNA uh, to produce a DNA profile, but it's also used for things like sequencing as well. So it has a couple of different applications. It draws up the samples through all these tubes in a little labyrinth, puts it through this laser, which we've been warned very helpfully not to expose ourselves to. And then this laser, if it detects the colours that have been already dyed, it will know here is the presence or the absence of a specific part of the gene. Yes, yes, correct. And then eventually that will just pass through into the waste and then um, the information from the laser will be then transferred onto uh, data collection software where uh, we can actually view the um, profile. Marie showed me one of the DNA profiles they've made. And this isn't your entire genetic sequence. It's a set of, in this case, 17 sections of your barcode, which are likely to be different in unrelated individuals. To my untrained eye, it looked a bit like a graph with small coloured spikes. And these profiles from the crime scene DNA can then be compared with the profiles of the suspect DNA, either incriminating them or exonerating them. And the chances of a match with a stranger? About one in a billion. So unless you have a particularly criminal identical twin, not bad odds. Very, very accurate. Um, chances of you know having someone not being a match, you know, one in a billion. So that's I think that's highly discriminatory. It's also very sensitive. You only need about zero point zero one nanograms per microliter. You can get a lot of data from that. Is there not a risk when every human has their own set of DNA that it could get quite easily contaminated? Yes, because the technique DNA profiling has become so sensitive, um, that is always a constant worry. So in the lab, we often wear lab coats. We completely clean down the surfaces. We generally have what are called pre-PCR and post-PCR um, just to, our labs just to make sure that we minimize the contamination and obviously wear gloves, um, all the protective gear, you know, tie your hair back, everything you can think of. Dr. Marie Ashimoto there. Marie assured me that any accidental contaminations can be sorted out relatively easily. Our prisons aren't full of genetic analysts. But if DNA can be so easily transferred, can the same be said for other types of forensic evidence? Especially as technology advances means we're getting so much better at detection. James French is from University College London's Centre for Forensic Sciences, and he has been asking these kinds of questions. 
There are a number of issues that have arisen in recent years in, in forensic science. It's been highlighted that in a number of fields of forensic science, there's a lack of underpinning research um, to underpin our opinions and, and conclusions. And um, this was captured in the report by the National Academy of Sciences in the in the US in 2009. Um, and they really criticised forensic science as having a lack of scientific basis in a number of different areas. And I guess that the work we try to do at the centre tries to correct that to some extent and to improve the scientific basis for drawing conclusions in forensic science. But surely all of our technology is getting better, so our conclusions should be getting better too. I think this is actually one of the, the problems. We've, we've come on so far in, in different areas of analysis in forensic science, but there are still many sort of unanswered questions and gaps in our knowledge in terms of interpretation. So while we're able to answer the sort of what questions with, with greater certainty, the sort of how and how did it get there and how long has it been there, there's still questions that we, we need to, um, to engage in more research in order to understand. So what specifically do you work on? Um, so I've conducted um, some research into looking at gunshot residue. Gunshot residues are produced uh, when a firearm is discharged. They're made up of different um, compounds from the, from the bullet itself. And under high temperature and pressure, these particles are formed. They cool and condense as they, they are ejected from the firearm and they're deposited in the vicinity. We might look to recover them at the scene of a, a, an incident involving a firearm um, and they can provide useful uh, intelligence and evidence in the investigation of crime. By analysing the gunshot residues, we might be able to determine something about the ammunition that was used, but also the presence of material on a suspect might indicate that they've been involved in the incident. Um, so it could be highly valuable uh, information. But as I mentioned before, there are a number of gaps in our understanding when it comes to gunshot residues. Uh, we've got a demo here. We didn't get hold of a real gun. I'm sure you'll be glad to hear, but I've bought a toy gun that's used for shooting flies. Okay. So can you show me what would happen in terms of how the gun would leave residue on your hands and how you might go about finding it? So I'll use a little bit of artistic license here. Um, so we can imagine that this is just a, a handgun. So um, if I was to, to hold it um, like I'm showing you now, which is basically holding it in my right hand while supporting with my left hand, um, and I was to fire the gun, the gunshot residues would be part of the blast cloud that was ejected at the front of the gun, um, but also at little ejection ports in the side. And um, this would form the sort of cloud of residues that you see in a sort of slow-mo picture of a, of a firearm discharged. And typically that, that cloud would, would, would be propelled back towards the, towards the shooter and in the vicinity. And residues we would expect to be deposited on the hands, particularly the back of the hands of the shooter, also on their face and hair, as well as their arms and sleeves, but also around and into the environment surrounding the firearm. So if I was to discharge the firearm... Go for it. Uh, Shane, OK. okay. <laughs> we would expect to recover gunshot residues, potentially, from the, from the back of my hand that was used to, to fire the gun. So I'm going to sort of seed my hands with some fake gunshot residue, which is just a UV powder. So I'm just putting it particularly on the area that, um, that we would expect to, to, to locate it in, and that's really between the, the sort of thumb and index finger uh, and in the gaps between my fingers there. And we can just see that actually that reflects under, under UV light. We can see Shining that. blue yeah, thumb now. Blue-purple. So when it came to sampling, imagine I was a suspect 
and I'd been apprehended, I might be sampled for gunshot residues. And, and the, the, the way of doing this is, is really quite simple. We just use a, a little sticky self-adhesive tab that's attached to a stub, um, and these are sealed in, in a sealed tube that ensures uh, that there can be no contamination from the environment. And the process is, is simply that with gloved hands, we would look to, to dab on the back of the hands, particularly focusing on the sort of webbing between the thumb and, and index finger um, to ensure that any residues were collected. Also in, in the sort of cracks between, between fingers and knuckles as well to ensure that we were collecting the maximum amount of material. Um, and that would kind of be quite standard procedure um, after a firearm is discharged. Meaning you would be caught red, or in our case, shining purple, handed, with evidence that a gun was fired in your hands. But does detecting this residue really mean it was you who done it? Part two of our demo suggested not. So if I was to, to shake your hands in, in the normal way, and then we can look at your hands using the UV light, you can see that there's some reflecting um, uh... between your thumb and forefinger there. I see. I've been contaminated. Yep, and, and potentially implicated in, in a crime. You've also got some there that I can see the naked eye as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a transfer that's occurred there. Um, and that really is the... We've just demonstrated the principle of, of secondary transfer. And it's been shown that, that this is applicable to a number of different types of evidence, um, including gunshot residue and other traces, but also also DNA as well. And it's not just fun with toys. James and his team have tested this effect with a controlled experiment. They got police to fire real guns and then to shake hands with people who had not been present at the firing range. The results of those experiments were were that we found that gunshot residues could be transferred in fairly significant quantities from person to person. We actually found that the shooter was able to transfer material to another person who was then able to transfer to a third individual. Material was also transferred through the handling of a fired firearm as well. It's really just an extension of one of the basic principles of forensic science, which is Edmund Lockhart's axiom that every contact leaves a trace. And what the aim of this research really was not just to demonstrate that this kind of thing can occur, but it was to inform forensic scientists who who encounter gunshot residue about the possibility of the evidence that they're observing um, having arisen from a secondary transfer. The questions being asked by scientists like James will hopefully improve our interpretation of forensic evidence because when it comes to trials, they're key to convictions, right? Some research conducted in the United States found that only in about 2% of cases was forensic evidence actually used to link a suspect to the crime. Or not. That's the voice of Graham Pike. He's Professor of Forensic Cognition at the Open University. I deployed fellow naked scientist Greer Jackson, who's here with me now. Hello. To find out how forensic science can actually hinder an investigation. There's a case called the Phantom of Heilbronn. This was a serial killer that German police and European police searched for for many, many years and believed to be the world's first transgender serial killer. Um, This person was linked to murders, to robberies, to car crime, to theft. So it was a very odd serial um, offender. But all the eyewitness testimony said that the person was a man, but all the DNA evidence was from a woman. And rather than questioning DNA analysis, the police believed this must be a transgender serial killer. It turned out that a woman who worked in the factory that manufactured the tubes or swabs or whatever they are wasn't doing her job properly and contaminated every single device that she constructed. 
So it was her DNA that was being recovered from these crime scenes across Europe. But rather than question DNA analysis, the police invented the world's first transgender serial killer who was roaming Europe committing all of these crimes. Wow, that's quite a story. Yeah. And I think that shows us that DNA analysis can be flawed. But it also shows you that even the police perhaps can put a little bit too much store in uh, forensic science. So in reality, forensic science is not used in that many cases and is not this uh, fantastic solution that never goes wrong. Really, if you want to know what actually took place in a crime, you need an eyewitness or the victim themselves to tell you what happened. And this, I suppose, involves a lineup. So walk me through what happens when you catch the suspect. Once they've got a suspect, one of the things they do is to show that person to the eyewitnesses and victims that were involved in the crime to see whether those people can recognise them. What we need is something like a, a lineup. We need the suspect themselves and people that look like them. We then need to show that to the witness. Now, that means that the witness, the suspect, at least eight people that look like them, legal representation, as well as policing personnel, all have to be together in the same place at the same time. A logistical nightmare that can actually delay this process by up to six weeks. And I suppose we all know that it's much harder to remember something from six weeks ago than it was yesterday. But that's just not all. Stress can really affect your memory too. Picture this, right? You were held at gunpoint during a robbery. Imagine how stressful that is in the first place. Now you have to go and confront them, identify them in the flesh. Absolutely the last thing I would want to be doing. But isn't some stress quite good for your memory? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A little bit of stress perhaps before your exam can be really good for your cognition, but lots of stress, not good at all. Um, But a lot of stress, such as a victim of a crime might experience, has a very deleterious effect indeed on cognitive performance. Does that mean there's lots of mistaken identities and, in effect, wrongful convictions? And if so, how many? Working out the incidence of miscarriages of justice is very difficult indeed. um, Because, of course, you actually need to know what happened in the original crime. If a very long, drawn-out investigation and court trial wasn't able to establish that, then how's a researcher going to? Researchers looking at this estimate that something in the order of a quarter to a third of all identifications made by an eyewitness are actually identifying somebody who's innocent. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that person then goes on to be convicted. Uh, There are checks and balances. There's the court procedure as well. In the United States there's an organisation called the Innocence Project that investigate cold cases from many years ago in which physical samples were kept, but DNA analysis wasn't used in the original investigation. So far, they've overturned more than 300 cases of uh, wrongful conviction. Some of those people were on death row. The average sentence served by those people was more than 13 years. I mean, that seems very high. And the fact that they were on death row frightens the pants off of me. It's a very scary statistic. I would place a great deal of money indeed that at least one person has been executed in the the US who was innocent of the crime they committed. It could be many more. But it's undoubtedly the case that many people have served significant decades of their life in prison for crimes they didn't commit. 
I mean, that estimation alone makes me think something needs to be done. So in an ideal situation, when it comes to eyewitness testimony at least, we need a solution that gets rid of the logistical nightmare stuff, making it quick so that witnesses have a better chance of identifying a suspect and that's also stress-free. Plus, the lineup needs to be conducted by an officer who doesn't know the identity of the suspect. That's because the person can give off quite subtle non-verbal communication that cues the witness into who it is. And then witnesses, having identified someone, often report looking at the officer to see if they got it right. Cue the non-verbal cue. Oh, I see. Sounds like there's loads to think about here. Yeah, but it turns out the solution is actually pretty simple. A database with hundreds of videos of people. Rather than a police officer wandering around uh, the local shopping mall trying to find eight people that look like the suspect, we can look through thousands and thousands of faces. That means that the people who appear in the parade will look more like the suspect and the parade will be fairer. Another significant advantage is video identification parade systems are perceived by witnesses as being less stressful. This video identification parade, it sounds like it overcomes a lot of those problems, but I wonder, can we ever really be sure what we thought we saw? I don't think it's possible to imagine um, a technology that could be developed, no matter how sophisticated, that could ever overcome the fundamental problems with human cognition. We kind of have this perception that when we're seeing something, we see everything that goes on around us, the world is exactly as we see it, and that we remember it almost like a videotape. Our memories are not like a memory of a computer. We interpret the world around us to make sense of it. And so we remember things according to who we are and the expectations we have about how certain situations um, should play out. So technology can, can assist in limiting those errors, but technology will never be able to overcome the fundamental frailty of human cognition. Hold on, that sounds like it's quite dramatically unreliable then. And I know Graham mentioned earlier that forensic science can lead you on this complete wild goose chase. But the figures he said earlier about all these wrongful convictions are quite shocking to me. And it sounds like DNA is actually what cleared their names in the end. But now he's saying that an eyewitness might be remembering something completely differently to what happened. Yeah, it's a really phenomenally complex series of processes and I think every single tool in your kit is going to have its positives and its negatives. And I think ultimately you've just got to use as many of those tools as possible so that you get rid of some of those blind spots. Like when you're in a car, you've got three mirrors, your two wing mirrors and your... Is it the rear view mirror? The rear view mirror, (laughs) yep. And um, you sort of feel like you've got enough field of vision to be able to drive safely, but you've still got a blind spot. I think it's that's the point Graham's trying to make. Use as many bits of kit as you possibly can to make it as fair as possible, but also realise that there are blind spots and mistakes. I guess we just have to be aware that our brains aren't quite as clever as we thought they were. Yeah, I mean, I think people often think, I mean, myself included, think my eyes are like cameras and my brain is like this computer and everything I see is the truth, basically. But actually... Our pictures have filters and when you're stressed, the brain can do all sorts of funny things to those pictures. So, yeah, the brain is just phenomenally complex and we're only really just starting to understand some of the most basic fundamental functions of the brain, yet alone some of the more really complex things we've been talking about today, like stress, memory and forgetting. 
Greer Jackson there. This got me thinking, how can the understanding of our brain affect other parts of the court process? Maybe in the far future we'll be able to tell when someone is lying with a simple brain scan. But what about the here and now? Well, Connie Orbach, our resident neuroscientist, has been telling me about how the improved insight into the brain has been used not to show that someone did do it, but instead that they're not to blame. In a couple of cases, the defence argued it was a disease or a tumour inside of the brain which caused them to commit these crimes. But should this be the future of our courtrooms? Connie spoke to Dr Kyle Treiber, lecturer in neurocriminology from the University of Cambridge, to find out. It's becoming more common to see neuroscientific evidence used in the courts. In the UK, there's um, a lot more restriction on its use at the moment. Um, In other countries that we see these evidence being used on a much more regular basis. There isn't a very clear protocol for how to use this material, and that's something that law is dealing with at the moment. But I come from the neuroscience side, and one thing that I see um, when I am crossing over um, into the legal area is that there's a very different kind of language being spoken. So neuroscientists are speaking a scientific language. We're looking to find out what the truth is. We want to understand what is actually the processes that are underlying a particular behavior. When you're looking at the legal side of it, you're trying to have two sides of the story specify whether or not this person is responsible for the action and whether they um, should be held responsible. And it's a different, it's a very different kind of approach. Um, And I think there's going to be a discussion that's going to have to be had between the sciences and uh, the law side to better understand how we're going to integrate these two bodies of knowledge, which both have a great deal to bring to the table, but to actually move forward for how we can use this information and how we can make it accessible to a court. If someone were to say to me, oh, there is a difference in their brain structure, it's very easy to go, okay, well, that sounds like a good excuse. (laughs) Yeah, um, there's a lot of uh, interesting research about the fact that if you show someone an image of a person's brain and they have uh, a damage to the brain, then that is very influential on how they think about that person and and that person's capabilities and that person's um, responsibility for the criminal action and the role that 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 damage is going to play. So clearly neural evidence, or blaming it on the brain, is a powerful defence. But maybe the way it is used in court as evidence for or against criminal behaviour is pretty far from the more nuanced information that a scientist sees. So is there ever a circumstance where Kyle would be happy to say, there, that abnormality is the reason for the crime? When you have these very extreme cases, very colourful cases, where, for example, you have a very rare kind of tumour situation, it's a very extreme kind of case. Most uh, offending behaviour that we have, there's, there seems to be no uh, real link to any kind of specific disability or specific brain damage or injury of any sort. So it is a direction that we certainly need to be aware of because some individuals will have certain vulnerabilities. But one thing I always stop to think about in these kind of cases is if there was an individual who had exactly, say, these same cognitive abilities, are there individuals like that who aren't offending, who aren't committing crime? And in the vast majority of cases, we can find examples where that is where that is case. And that suggests to us that, that this is not the cause of their offending. That's not to say that it isn't um, playing a role in their offending, but it also isn't determining that offending. It doesn't make it uh, absolutely that that offending is going to happen. One of the things that neuroscientists would like to communicate to people is that we're still learning a lot. 
we don't actually have a very good range of knowledge as to what is normal. So what are the variations we see in brains? Normally, people's brain structures will vary. People's brain functioning will vary. To what extent does that actually lead them to behave in different ways? And, and I don't think at the moment we have enough of an understanding of that to be very clear to say, if you have this particular brain structure or this functional abnormality, this is the result you're going to get as far as behavior. Similarly to genetics in the nature-nurture debate, the brain is just part of the bigger picture. And two people may have the same defect, but one will not offend. This is one of the things we really emphasise a lot, is the difference between the content and the machinery. So you have the, the neurocognitive machinery, and this will be based on both uh, the brain and how it's developed and how it functions, um, but that's also experiential. So that depends on what your experiences have been on over time. We know that people's experiences actually influence the structure of the brain as they're developing. So there's the machinery aspect of it, and that will have an impact on how people perceive their environments, how they interact to them, uh, the emotions that they experience. But there's also the content element, and the content is what they learn and what they gather from those environments. And in some ways, um, there's evidence, I would think, that suggests that that content may be more important than the machinery. And of course, the content is where we're going to have the most ability to um, influence individuals because we can change that information that they're receiving. The content is clearly important, and in Carl's own research, she is finding out just how important by following teenagers over years of their lives and studying all of their interactions and the places they go to see who offends and who doesn't. But I'm still interested by these big tumours, the colourful ones, as Carl put it. Because surely, how much we can blame these is only down to whether or not we can see them. A few decades ago, cognitive impairment wasn't a defence because we didn't know someone was impaired. As our technology continues to improve and we can see every little deviation from the norm, is it not possible that the brain as a defence becomes, if anything, more available? This is the exciting bit of neuroscience and, and, and neurotechnology at the moment. It is expanding very rapidly. It's becoming not only more affordable, but also there are many new technologies. So one of the new things that has, has come out more recently is looking at the connections between areas of the brain and how messages and, and signals are sent between areas of the brain. We couldn't see that before. And that actually is proving to be very important for understanding functioning. It's been connected to types of functioning that, that are often mentioned in criminological literature, like psychopathy um, and other kinds of, of social behavior. Because we can now see that, that functionality and we can see the structures that are there because of new types of imaging that we have, it's a whole new area that we can look at for understanding the brain and how it works and the fact that it is very interconnected. And it may not be about having this structure or that structure that's functioning independently, but how they actually structure or how they function codependently. And that technology, we would presume, is going to continue to get better and we will then better understand the structure and the function of the brain. But the more we learn about the functionality of, of the brain, the more we understand and find that it is very much about interactions, that we have evolved to interact with our environments. And so we are looking for content. We need the content for the brain to develop. We need the content for the brain to function. And this is a very new field in criminology because criminology has tended to look at the individual or at the environment. And now we're trying to integrate the two. And it's about the person when they're in the environment and the action that then results. Kyle Treiber speaking there to Connie Orbach. And what I really took away from that is this idea of scientists and lawyers learning to speak each other's language. And this again goes back to what I've been hearing about managing expectations of the police and the jury on how much to rely on any one piece of evidence. 
It isn't like CSI. It's not black and white, and it might not mean what you think it does. So can science prove who did it? Well, I've heard the arguments, and I've reached my verdict at least. Science does have an important role to play in the courtroom. We just have to make sure we ask the right questions. I'd like to thank all my guests this week. In the order you heard them, that was Martin Hall, Jason Coyne, Peter French, Marie Ochimoto, James French, Graham Pike and Kyle Triber. The programme was produced by me, Georgia Mills, with help from Naked Scientist Greer Jackson and Connie Orbach. Do join us next week when we'll be looking at why the clock is ticking on our phosphorus supplies. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. Until next week, goodbye from me and the rest of the Naked Scientist team. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.